Hello, everybody. I'm Dalton Main, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Birds Podcast, where we aim to hit the health and wellness industry head on and take a new approach to have fun and get healthier by accident. We cover an unapproachable amount of topics on this show, from gaming and technology to healthy habits, new supplements, and bizarre healthcare stories. I want to quickly mention that this podcast is separate from Corey and I's roles as healthcare providers, and none of this information should be taken as direct health advice. Should I have to say that? No. Does my lawyer say I have to say that? Yes. I actually don't know. I don't have a lawyer, but it sounded good. Without babbling, let's get right into the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Healthy Birds podcast. I am Corey, and with me as always is the handsome but uh, ultimately unhygienic Dalton, also known as Dr. Ducko. Uh, hold your jeering, hold your booze, uh, because today we also have with us Dr. Ryman, the cannabis expert uh, for round two of Plants Over Pills. Uh, first episode, we spoke last year, we focused 100% on cannabis. We will link that podcast in the show notes below so you can go listen to that. Uh, today, we're here for round two, and uh, before we get started, I really wanted to talk about this tea break that you recently had because you've been sharing your experience over social media. Uh, you recently took a 30-day break, I believe it was, and I just wanted to hear from your experience what that was like and how that's changed your consumption. Well, it's great to be back and see you both. Um, yeah, you know, I have been a regular cannabis consumer for over half my life. And I use primarily for wellness, but one of the things about cannabis is that it makes you feel really good. So it is definitely possible for it to be habit forming. And if you're using cannabis regularly over a long period of time, sometimes it becomes more of a habit than a ritual. And you start to do it just because you do it and you do it again just because you just did it. And there's a couple of implications of, on that that I really wanted to address with my break. One, of course, it's a tea break, tea is for tolerance. We definitely build up tolerance over time to cannabis. And so you might find that you need more over time in order to get the same effect. And then you also might find that I calling it, you know, chasing the high. You know, we all kind of remember the euphoria that we felt when we became new cannabis consumers. And, you know, we would sit and talk for hours with friends and pontificate on the world. And then 20 years later, it's like, all right, I'm going to smoke and then I'm going to go do this or that. And it kind of becomes more just a part of daily life. One of the things that taking a break can do chemically is it can drop your tolerance so that when you go back to it, you're able to use a lot less and get kind of that same euphoric effect that you might be looking for after many, many years of regular use. Also, you know, we have our endocannabinoid systems, our ECS, which uh, is our nervous system-like regulatory system in our bodies, and it regulates things like mood and sex and appetite and sleep, you know, all like the really important cornerstones of healthy, happy living. And the thing is, is that if you are consistently bringing in cannabinoids from the plant, your ECS can get lazy. Like why does it need to work really hard when it's getting everything it needs from the plant and it can kind of slow down and become a little sluggish. And this is not good because we want our ECS to be vibrant and effective and efficient and to be doing its job. So one of the benefits and goals of, you know, kind of laying off the plant for a little while is to get your ECS up and running again. 
to make sure that it's working well, to make sure that it's working effectively and efficiently. And so, you know, when you take a break, it can be a couple days before that happens. Um, but that's a really important component. Now, the good news is that even though I took a break for a month, you really only need a break for about 48 hours in order to have this effect, in order for your ECS to kind of jumpstart itself, in order for your tolerance to go down. So if you're out there thinking, oh my goodness, I know I should probably take a break, but I really can't fathom being away from cannabis for an entire month. The good news is you don't have to do that. And the even better news is you don't even necessarily have to abstain completely for you to get the benefits. If you are someone that's consuming high potency concentrates, for example, you can move to a low dose edible for a week. And that's a good way to take a tea break. If you're somebody that's consuming six or seven times a day, you can go down to once or twice a day for a week or so. And that's another way to have a tea break. So there's all kinds of ways to reduce the amount of phytocannabinoids from the plant that you're taking into your body and therefore get your ECS to jumpstart itself. So that was a big reason why I did this. But you know, going back just for a moment to the habit, uh, I wanted to break the habit. And it takes about 28 days to break a habit. So if you're looking to change any kind of habit, whether that's wanting to exercise regularly or wanting to cut out alcohol or wanting to cut out junk food or wanting to meditate daily, doing it for 28 days in a row is a really good way to establish a new habit in its place. And for me, that was just as important as kind of resetting my endocannabinoid system is that I really wanted to break the habit. And I will tell you, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, now that I've gone back to it, it's easier for it not to be habitual, but it's not like, oh, the habit's gone and now I don't have to think about it anymore. Like, it's definitely still there, but you're better able to manage it and better able to stay within the guidelines of what healthy use looks like for you. That's. It sounds like uh, the 48-hour thing is probably very... Very nice for those stony balonies out there that were nervous by the 30 day, the 30 day number. I'm sure that's daunting for a lot of people to think about. What was that? Uh, how many days are you back into the, back into consuming? And what was that first time? Like, did you set up like a whole, whole ritual and light the candles and get things, get things ready or, or how was it? Pray to the Shiva gods. <laughs> right, um, right. So I, I, I'm about 10 days back in. Um, so, you know, actually at the first of the year, I stopped smoking. So that was one thing I wanted to cut out completely, like forever. Um, mm. I'm just done with smoking. You know, we can go into the research and, and the health risks of smoking cannabis. Um, you know, it's definitely more benign than smoking some other things that you could choose, but it's not completely safe. And so I wanted to move away from smoking. So I decided I'm going to just go to dry flower vaping which I really enjoy. I don't like the, the oils, the cartridges, but I like to vape just whole flour. And I also really enjoy edibles. So the first night back, I chose a pretty low THC uh, cultivar, about 14% THC, because I didn't want to just completely blast myself. And the reality is for those out there that are thinking about a tea break or on a tea break, there is a risk when you go back to it of anxiety. If you choose a cultivar or a product that's too high in THC and your body isn't used to it, it can definitely cause an anxiety reaction. So I really wanted to be careful around that. 
So I cho chose a not quite as potent flower. Um, I what's loaded a, up my packs. Sorry, Amanda. What is a what's a cultivar? Yeah. Sorry if you said that. Oh, it's a strain. It's it's, oh, it's okay. just a, a more farmer friendly, botanical friendly way of saying strain. Because okay. cannabis strains, I mean, it's kind of like that's what's in the public discourse. But the reality is from like a botanical point of view, um, an agricultural point of view, they're really cultivars. Okay. So that's just something I picked up from living in the Emerald Triangle where all the farmers are. Um, so I, I chose one that was a little bit not that it wasn't quite as strong. Um, I loaded up a Pax, my Pax vaporizer. And I will say that first bowl I was like, wow, this might actually be a little too much. I mean, it, it really like hit me hard. And I was, you know, I was always the type of person that was very high functioning stoner. Um, you know, I would take 50 milligrams of THC and then go do kickboxing on a Saturday morning. Like it was just part of who I was. And as I got older, I found that my tolerance was dipping naturally. But, you know, having this one bowl, I said to my partner, I was like, I couldn't even drive right now. Like, <laughs> like I couldn't do anything. I mean, I waited till it was after five. I didn't have any more work to do. And then it lasted me the rest of the night. Like, I usually, after one bowl, my brain is like, all right, when's the next one? Right? It's like eating a cookie. And then your brain is like, when are we going to have another cookie? That was really good. And I like the way the sugar made me feel. Um, it was very similar. And now I found that my brain was like, okay, you've had this cannabis. You definitely feel euphoric. You're good. Like you don't really need anymore. Um, and so, you know, since then I'm kind of have these rules that I'm instituting for myself so that it doesn't become a habit again. And I feel like people struggle with that though. They have that instant gratification of this made me feel good. I want another and I want another and I want another. And that's how they form those bad habits. Do you have any recommendations for people who do fall into that slippery slope of more is better of how to establish those rules for yourself? Well, that's a great question. So there's a couple things. One is look at the way that you're consuming. Vape pens are very habit forming because it's so easy. It's just sitting there next to you. You can pick it up at any time, take a hit, put it down, take it up, take a hit, put it down. You don't have to do anything except change the cartridge when it empties. And, you know, you can use it in most places. So if you're somebody that is using a vape pen, um, you might want to think about a method of consumption that takes a little bit more effort. Uh, so, you know, if you don't want to smoke, then again, maybe going to a dry flower vape, or at least you have to like take out the flower and grind it up and put it in the vape and consume it and then empty it afterwards. I mean, even giving yourself those few steps can keep you from just mindlessly picking it up. It's kind of like, if I don't want to mindlessly eat cookies, I shouldn't sit there with a bag of cookies <laughs> because it just becomes so easy, right? I should take one cookie and go put it away in the kitchen so that if I want another one, at least I have to get up and go get it. And it isn't as easy as just sitting there while I'm watching Netflix, putting things into my mouth. Um, so it's it, look at how you're consuming. And then secondly, is establish rules for yourself. And this is why taking that 28 days is really helpful because it really helps break the mind like habit of wanting to consume constantly. And so I set up rules for myself. During the week, no consumption before 5 p.m. Uh, on the weekends, I give myself a little leeway and I say 3 p.m. because, you know, it's the weekend and I'm probably not doing much. Treat yourself. Uh, 
treat myself exactly, but no more waking and baking, which was hard because like I said, I love to work, uh, to consume before working out. And during the week I work out in the evenings, but on the weekends I work out in the mornings. And so going to that workout without cannabis definitely was something I had to get used to. Um, and then also between sessions. So I tell myself a minimum of two hours between sessions. So if I have a vaped bowl at five o'clock, I'm not even thinking about consuming any more cannabis till at least 7 p.m. Um, the other thing I do, I'm doing for myself, because one of the things I loved about the tea break were the dreams. So as you may know, uh, THC suppresses REM, sleep, and that's when we dream. So for folks that are chronic cannabis consumers that consume regularly, that are consuming right before bed, one of the things that happens is you don't dream. Uh, or if you do, they're very fragmented. The dreams aren't as vivid. Now, if I'm somebody that has PTSD and one of my symptoms is nightmares, no dreams is like a bonus. Like that's a great effect. But I'm not one of those people. And I love to dream. So I wanted to make sure that I was going to maintain my dreaming while I was going back to consumption. So no consumption at least an hour before bed for me. Um, and that's been a way to maintain, maintain my dreaming. So one thing I was going to, I'm excited that we're going here because I didn't expect to, whenever you were talking earlier about your decision to stop smoking, and I want to know why you made that decision. And then also if you could go in a little bit into detail on maybe the difference between your typical, you know, nicotine vape that you see so many people using now compared to like your dry flower vape you were talking about, because we've all seen the research coming out and how negative it is to consume these, these nicotine vapes. And I'm just curious the differences, if, if you've looked into that at all. Um, and then again, if you could talk about why you've decided to stop smoking, um, the, why you've stopped smoking cannabis. So, okay. So I want to say with a caveat that I believe in harm reduction. And I know that there are many ways for people to reduce the potential harms of their activities without abstinence. Mm. And so I don't necessarily want to come out super anti-tobacco vaping because it is a way for people to move off of cigarettes. And oh, yeah. it does pose less of a risk to health for somebody to vape tobacco versus smoke cigarettes. Um, so I just want to make that clear. However, when we're talking about cannabis vaping, there's a couple of concerns I have. One, as I mentioned, is it's very habit forming. Um, you know, we are not a society that does very well with moderation. You know, we want to consume a whole bunch of something that makes us feel good without any consequences. And so I do think that the vape pen, just by the nature of it being so easy to pick up and use, can become very habit forming. And so I do have concerns about younger folks, people who are 18, 19 years old, who are starting on vape pens because they can hide it easily. People, they don't smell like cannabis. But the oil that is in a vape pen is very potent. It is very high THC. It can range from 60% to 90% THC. And so I spoke earlier about the ECS becoming dampened when we put a lot of cannabinoids from the plant in our bodies. This can happen very rapidly with high potency products. So that tolerance can build pretty quickly. So I think that there is a concern with that. Also, even though on the regulated market, everything is tested, we're still seeing a lot of vape cartridges that aren't like full flower or whole flower or full spectrum. 
They're isolates or distillates of THC that sometimes have food grade terpenes added back in afterwards. So in some ways, they're kind of like the processed food of the cannabis world. And from the very beginning, my advice has always been, whatever cannabis product you consume, it should be as close to the original plant as possible. Because there's a lot of things in the cannabis plant besides THC that are benefits for health, that impact the effect it's going to have, that mediate the effect of the THC. And so from my perspective, uh, dry flower vaping is going to be healthier because it's kind of like eating the whole orange versus drinking orange juice. Now, orange juice has vitamin C in it, but it's pretty much sugar um, with orange in it. And when you eat the whole orange, you get all the fiber and other things that come from actually eating the flesh of the fruit. And so I encourage folks to choose products that are going to be as similar to what the actual plant is like. And if you're choosing to consume via inhalation, that's going to be using the whole plant versus using an extract or a distillate of the plant. Um, so that's why I would choose dry flower vaping over a vape cartridge. Now, why I stopped smoking for myself, there was a couple reasons. One is that I was coughing. I mean, I'm 46 and I've been smoking cannabis since I was 19, like regularly. And after smoking, and I've always been a smoker, like I like edibles, but I've always been a joint smoker or a bowl smoker. And I was noticing I was coughing more. I was noticing I was having to like clear my throat a lot more after I was smoking, that I was having some phlegm, that after I would smoke a lot, like I would actually feel kind of a heaviness. Um, it was affecting my voice, I felt like, um, when I was doing podcasts and other things. I kind of felt like it was becoming a bit more gravelly. And it was also affecting my gum health. So one thing about smoking cannabis is that even though it doesn't pose the same risks of lung cancer, emphysema, and COPD as smoking cigarettes, you are still lighting a plant on fire and inhaling smoke into your mouth. And that can have effects on your gums and on your teeth. And so these are all things that you don't really think about when you're younger, <laughs> but so fun when you get to be older, you really start to think about these things because, you know, you want to have healthy mouth and gums and everything, you know, as you get older and you want to have a healthy throat and you don't want to get bronchitis. And, you know, you, these are all things you really start to think about. And so I made the decision that it would be better for me to to consume via inhalation of vaping versus smoking. We'll have to do a uh, a side by side Amanda Ryman rating of your voice quality from six months ago to today and see if you're you've improved on your voice quality. That's that's funny though. I didn't I didn't I didn't realize that, but it makes sense if you're if you're coughing all the time, you've got to be doing some damage to your to your throat and, and just having to and all the inspiratory muscles as you're coughing and it's gotta be, that'd be harmful in, in the long run. I'm curious, you talked earlier about doing a, or kind of having, it's not necessarily a breakthrough, but it could be for you if you consider, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but putting yourself kind of like these constraints, these positive constraints on yourself of saying, Hey, if I've smoked, I'm going to wait two hours to do this. And, and, um, I'm curious if that's any sort of is this different from any any other tea breaks you've had in the past or have you had tea breaks in the past? And I just, is this something that's new for you that you feel like you're going to continue for a long time or you're just kind of experimenting with it? Well, that's a good question. So the last tea break I took was seven years ago. Wow. And I did another month 
and I was thinking about it, you know, I did a month and then I went immediately on vacation. And mm. I think that was a bad idea because as you probably have experienced and on vacation, everything goes out the window, right? It's all about excess. You know, I'm going to eat all the food. I'm going to drink all the things. I'm going to smoke all the things like I'm on vacation. And so I feel like I fell back into my habit pretty quickly because the reality is the tolerance builds up again. I mean, I'm even finding now 10 days out, like I mentioned that first night I had one bowl of vape flour and I was like on the moon. Last night I had my bowl of vape flour and I was like, oh, that's nice. But I definitely still felt competent. I didn't feel super intoxicated. So even after 10 days, I'm noticing that my tolerance is starting to creep back up again. So the last time I did my tea break, I really just kind of went back into it head first and was immediately like, all right, I'm just going to consume as much as I want because I did this reset. Um, so now I wanted to approach it differently because to your point, I wanted to make a lifelong change. I wanted to make a change where I felt like I was more in control over my consumption versus my consumption being in control of me. So like to give you an example, you know, prior, if I was traveling, um, you know, it was like, oh my God, I have to make sure that my weed is spoken for. Like I have to bring something with me. I have to make sure I can consume somewhere around the hotel. Like I had to make all of these arrangements to make sure that I could still consume my cannabis no matter where I was. And I didn't like that. You know, I wanted to be able to go places and say, oh yeah, I'm not going to have cannabis for a few days. And that's fine. And not worry that it was going to have a negative impact on me. And so I think that it was really, again, more about taking control of my consumption and being more mindful and intentional about it versus just doing it because it's something to do. And compared to a lot of other things I could be doing, the negative impacts were less. And, you know, cannabis is great in that way, right? There's no risk of fatal overdose. It has a lot of health and wellness benefits. It makes you feel really good when you do it. And I think because of that, we can end up falling into this trap where we just use it almost as like a crutch for boredom or for, you know, I want to make this fun thing even more fun. And part of that is because your own endocannabinoid system is taking a vacation. So, you know, I mentioned the exercise and how I was so used to using cannabis before I would work out. But the thing is, is that when you work out, the runner's high or the high that you get associated with exercise is partially because of endocannabinoids. So your body's got you covered. Like it is going to give you euphoria from exercise. But if it's sluggish because you keep putting cannabis inside you, you're not going to get that. So one of the things I noticed after about a week of my break was when I would work out, like, oh my gosh, the euphoria was crazy. Like it was way even more than when I used cannabis prior to a workout. It was like my body's own endocannabinoids were giving me a better euphoric experience during exercise than cannabis ever did. And that was a moment where I was like, you know, my body's got this. Like it knows how to release the chemicals that are going to be what I need. And while I can use cannabis as well, I shouldn't be using it instead of. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me tell you, nobody wants to admit it, but we all need help. We are finally outgrowing the idea that we can all figure out this strange world on our own and we're normalizing therapy. We live in a digital world, so why not just do it online? So listen here, you old chap. If you're feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, or all the above, 
BetterHelp is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapy network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with therapists in under 48 hours. Then you schedule video and phone sessions and can exchange unlimited messages while everything stays completely confidential. You can request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Right now, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com Dalton. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N. So quit waiting around, people. Go get some help. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. I want to go back to something that you've mentioned a couple times now, and it's this endocannabinoid suppression with excessive use. So you're talking about these young kids who pick up vape pens when they're 18 years old. They carry them around in their purse or in their pocket everywhere they go. They take it during work breaks. They take it before they go to the store. How do you feel that affects productivity and overall mental health and mood? throughout the day when they don't have that as a young individual, they're not going to have that drive or that euphoria just from regular tasks on their dependency. And do you feel like there should be some type of an age limit imposed to where these individuals can get it? Obviously there's going to be, you're going to find access anywhere, but do you feel like there should be an age limit imposed where they could get access to this? Well, I, you know, I really don't believe in banning things or really prohibition because it doesn't stop use. It just drives it underground. And if we were to say you have to be 25 before you buy a vape pen, they'll still get vape pens. I mean, I got alcohol before I was 21. It wasn't like, you know, the 21-year-old shame, age shame. limit. Right. I know. My gosh, I can't believe I'm admitting this. I drank alcohol before I was 21. Parents are going to hear this. My parents are going to hear this. Oh, uh-huh. Um. So I don't necessarily think that that's the answer, but I do think we need to do a better job of educating people. I mean, one of the things is that, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, very much in the just say no kind of dare era of drug education, where we were just told, just don't do it. It's bad. Just don't do it. And now that people actually do have access to these products, we need to replace that with good evidence-based information about how to stay safe and healthy in light of access to cannabis products. And so, you know, it's like with sex, you know, we teach people where babies come from long before we expect that they're having sex. Um, We teach people about alcohol long before they're old enough to drink. And the reason we do this is because we're like, all right, this is something that's gonna be a part of their world. They need to understand the, the relative risks. They need to understand how to stay safe. And we just really haven't gotten there with cannabis. So, you know, explaining to a teenager that vaping 90% THC is not the same as smoking a joint that's like 15% THC. That, you know, what you're going to start to see is that you're going to need that vape pen in order to get any energy or any motivation. And it's going to start to have this up and down cycle during the day where you're using it first thing in the morning, you get a rush of energy, you start to crash around 10 a.m., you have to use it again to get yourself through lunch, then you have to use it again in the afternoon. And now you've kind of created this ebb and flow of consumption that really has nothing to do with your body's own endocannabinoid system. It more has to do with the expectation of flooding your system with cannabinoids in order to get that motivation. 
And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that when you stop consuming, it's very difficult. And one of the things when I was starting to, you know, this journey about taking my tea break and kind of changing my relationship with cannabis, one of the things that was a motivator was a subreddit. Um, and it's a subreddit called Leaves. And it is full of young people who are basically dependent on vape pens and are having a very, very hard time quitting. And they are talking about when they don't do it, they are feeling anxious, they're feeling depressed. Amanda, they have are, an these, appetite. are these uh, just, are, are they specifically cannabis vape pens or are they yeah, nicotine? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. No, they are cannabis, cannabis vape pens. Gotcha. Um, and the thing is, is that because your endocannabinoid system regulates a lot of these things, right? It regulates mood, it regulates sleep, it regulates appetite. When it's on vacation, because you're consuming so much from the plant, it, like I said, it takes like a week for your endocannabinoid system to start kicking in and taking care of these things again. So the withdrawals from cannabis are really related to your endocannabinoid system not yet fulfilling these things. So anxiety, depression, trouble sleeping, no appetite, which is what most people complain about when they stop using cannabis. It's really that no, now there's no cannabinoids, right? You're not getting them from the plant. Your own system hasn't really started kicking in again. And so those withdrawals can be severe for people that are using a lot of cannabinoids. Um, so again, you know, with the vape pen, it's so habit forming that it's just so easy to go back to it. You know, you say, I'm going to not use today. And then by noon, you're exhausted. You have a stomach ache. You're in a bad mood. And you're like, yeah, I could have one hit off this pen right here and everything will feel better. And so it's really hard for people to stop that habit and that behavior. And that's why I really recommend um, a 28-day break because it is time not only for your endocannabinoid system to reset itself, but for you as an individual to actually not feel that habitual pull to constantly consume. And I totally agree with that education piece too, because- I've worked in many different healthcare facilities and where I see 21 year olds or I'll assume that they're 21, you know, right before they go into a patient's room, you know, hover over, pull it out of their pocket, take a hit and then walk right into a patient's room to provide care for them. And I'm just thinking, you know, should we be responsible for these individuals care? Do they have the education necessary to be able to feel like they could provide accurate care? Should we be doing that on the job anyways? I mean, there's so many things that just terrify me with the access that some people have. And I agree with you. I think that some of that could be confronted by just having this early education, but it's, that's a question of where does education come into place? Is it in the school system? Is it parents' responsibilities to provide this education? Is it our responsibility to provide that education as people who are wanting to promote health awareness with consumption and things like that. So where do you feel like this education should take place? Should it take place in all of those places? Should it just yes. be personal and family? <laughs> everywhere, no, it should take, everywhere you know, it all the time. Place, it needs to take place in all of those scenarios. You know, um, not every parent is going to feel comfortable talking to their young person about cannabis. So the schools also need to talk about it in health class. Um, and they need to talk about it from a non-judgmental harm reduction perspective. So I remember in high school or junior high learning that um, one ounce of liquor was equal to four ounces of wine was equal to 12 ounces of beer. That was a very helpful comparison. 
Because if I didn't know that, I may have gotten out thinking that I drink a whole, a whole uh, glass of liquor. That that's, you know, glass of liquor, glass of beer. Um, you know, I learned about overdosing on alcohol. I learned about sobering up, that coffee doesn't sober you up and showers don't sober you up. That the only thing that sobers you up is time. I learned about the effect that alcohol had on judgment and decision-making. And so I do think that we need to bring this into schools in a non-judgmental way. And there's actually a great program out there called No Drugs, K-N-O-W, that is bringing kind of a harm reduction-based evidence, non-judgmental approach to schools. But I also think it's important for parents to do this. And Personal Plans, my education platform, we're actually in the middle of a three-part series on teens and cannabis. Um, I just posted part two today. And it really gets into what to do if you find out your teen is consuming cannabis, but also how to have the talk with them about cannabis. And you know, a lot of parents feel uncomfortable with this if they are cannabis consumers themselves. Um, you know, do as I say, not as I do, you know, not wanting to set a bad example. But I absolutely think it's possible to talk about cannabis as something that is for adults. Um, you know, kids see us driving a car and they're not like, how come I don't get to drive a car when I'm 12? You know, they understand that you have to wait until you're old enough. There's reasons why people can't drive when they're kids. So I do think it's important for parents to also have that conversation partially because you want your child to feel comfortable coming to you if they have questions or if they need help. And if you haven't had that conversation with them, they may not understand that you're not gonna judge them, that you're not gonna punish them, and that they are someone that you can come to. And finally, the industry needs to do education. I mean, we all know what happened with the tobacco industry. They denied for a very long time that there were any harms associated with smoking tobacco. Um, we do not want to be that industry. We want, you know, people are going to buy weed and they're going to smoke weed. It isn't going to kill sales of the industry if we're honest that cannabis might be for anybody, but it's not necessarily for everybody. And if companies and cannabis companies were more transparent about what are some of the risks, you know, and not just like the generic don't consume and drive, which they make the alcohol industry do. But really talking about, you know, have you had a break? Um, you know, are you consuming more than you used to? What does that mean? You know, when you talk about people that need a hit off the vape before they can go about their work day, you know, to me, that says that that's a maintenance dose, right? These folks are doing it to avoid withdrawal, not to get a benefit from the actual plant. So these are all conversations that should come from all directions. Because during the 100 years of prohibition, we had no opportunity to have these honest conversations. And it was really to the detriment of society. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back because you had mentioned one thing. I, I want to know where can people find that three-part educational uh, program that you're doing right now? So that's on mypersonalplants.com. Um, I'm writing it uh, with an adolescent psychologist, Barry Lesson, who's a harm reduction expert. And so, you know, this, this time we're, again, we're talking about, you know, what to do if you catch your kid smoking weed. And, you know, usually a parent's first response or inkling is going to be punishment, take away their phone, take away their social media, don't let them see their friends. But that's not really the right approach. Um, when a teenager is using cannabis, there's a lot of different ways they could be using it. There's experimentation, which is actually quite normal. Uh, which is, you know, I want to try this. I'm, I'm not going to use it regularly. I want to see what it's like. 
Um, and that that's pretty normal. Like I said, that it happens for a lot of teens around the age of 16, 17. And then if cannabis becomes habitual with a teenager, the message that I want to get out there is that it's not the cannabis. Don't, you know, focusing on the cannabis is missing an opportunity to figure out why your teenager feels the need to escape from reality on a regular basis. And yes, they're choosing cannabis to do that. And there's other things they could be choosing that are a lot worse for them and pose a lot more risk. But if a teenager is using cannabis habitually, my question is, what's going on with them psychologically? What's going on with them physically? What's going on with them socially? Like what is underneath that habitual use that needs addressing? It could be an undiagnosed mental health issue or physical health issue. It could be a social issue that they're struggling with at school or with their peer group. And they're finding that cannabis helps them feel better about it. But as a parent, it's important that we find out what's underneath the surface instead of just moving straight to taking away the phone, taking away the computer, um, you know, zero tolerance policies at schools where if a young person's caught with cannabis or other drugs, they're kicked off the football team, taken away from all their extracurricular activities. This is actually going to do more harm than good. Yeah, the I think what you're doing is incredible because I, I, I agree with you before where you were talking about how I think a lot of it has to do with the education piece and and a lot of parents don't feel comfortable in their own education on cannabis. And so they do go to that zero tolerance policy where they're just looking at a surface level of my kid's doing something illegal. That's bad. Let's punish them. Take the phone away. Keep them from their friends instead of looking deeper, which is why I'm assu- or I would assume that's why you're working closely with this psychologist is to look deeper at saying, okay, there's something else going on here, right? That there's there's something else psychological they want to escape reality, like you said, which I think was was beautiful because I don't think that a lot of parents would go there initially. I think they would be timid to go there and maybe even admit admit that it could be something to do with parenting. Um, it could be something going on in the house, so. That's a tough, it's a tough, uh, tough thing to tackle though, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it's very stigmatized. You know, we still have this idea that like, you shouldn't talk about weed in front of kids, or you definitely shouldn't talk about the fact that it has benefits. But the reality is if your teen is using cannabis, they're using it because it's giving them some kind of benefit. And that benefit may be quelling symptoms of something. That benefit may be, you know, helping them feel less depressed or anxious about something that's going on in their life. But they are finding benefit from it. So to come in and say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. It's bad for you when they're finding benefit from it is a really bad place to start the conversation. It's instead, it's starting where they're at, coming to them from a place of compassion. Um, and trying to better understand what they're getting from this. And is this the right thing to get them what they want? Um, or is there a better way for them to get what they want? Well, I think in I, the, the what, you, what you were talking about, sorry, Corey, what you were talking about makes sense too of like just understanding that telling your kid that this is something that is, it's an adult participation thing. And there's, there's that conversation to be had, right? Because I remember, I feel like my, my, my mom, whenever I was in high school, caught me with alcohol, right? And I was, it was after a party, we had taken, taken alcohol. And for some reason, I was the person that took it home, right? Just to like store it at my house, right? And of course, the old story of my mom decided randomly to clean my room one day. And guess what? She found this little duffel bag with some, with some alcohol in there. And she had a conversation with me. It wasn't a 
berating, like, you know, negative, negative, negative. You can't hang out with your friends, whatever. She had the conversation of saying, listen, as your mom, we're going to have this conversation. You've got to pour it out. I can't let you have this stuff. Like, you're just like, you know, you're my child. You're in the house, like just trying to be a responsible adult here, pour it out. But we had that, we had a conversation, right? And it wasn't anything that I left feeling, uh, less of a, of a son or like a, a really bad person. Right. And I think that, um, that's just something that I, I'm grateful for, but I think that I wonder if many of those conversations are being had around cannabis. I would, I would doubt it just because of the stigma that's been, that's been put on in the world. Well, it's that older population too, that, that zero tolerance, like you were saying, Amanda, that zero tolerance policy of it's bad, it's illegal, so you shouldn't do it. And there wasn't that education out about the benefits that could potentially be had. So I feel like that was the population that a lot of us had growing up was that zero tolerance, no understanding of it. Whereas now it's our responsibility as education is coming out to have those conversations and be the generation that can start having that conversation. Oh, absolutely. And it's tough because, you know, we're still learning, right? I mean, the parents themselves are still learning and, you know, may not understand the nuances. And there might be things about cannabis that their young person is engaging in that they don't even understand. You know, if you're somebody that always always smoked joints and then all of a sudden you see a dab rig in your kid's room, you might feel like I don't even have the expertise to talk to them about this because I don't understand it myself. So it's really important that parents also become educated. So it doesn't mean that you have to engage in all these different ways to consume, but you should at least know what they are, um, you know, know what dabbing is. Um, know what you know the different products are out on the market so that you can have an open conversation with your young person about cannabis without feeling like they're teaching you. Um, because I think that that is the hesitation of a lot of parents for a lot of things, not just cannabis, is that you don't want to engage in a conversation with your teen when they know more than you. Um, because there's that authority, right, that parents feel that they have to maintain. And so I think it's also important for parents to just admit what they don't know and be okay with that. Um, that's tough. I'm not a parent, so it's probably much harder than I think it is just coming out of my mouth. Um, but, you know, having that vulnerability to say, you know, I don't know a lot about this, but I'm going to learn more about it and we're going to learn together, but I'm here to support you is a really important, but yet sometimes difficult aspect of the conversation. Gosh, I can only imagine if you didn't know what a dab rig looked like and you walked in, you would think your kid's smoking meth for sure. Yeah. You would be, well, I, just, you would I had be this conversation like, yesterday about why like um, devices like Puffco have moved to these self-heating elements because the whole optics of carrying around a blowtorch um, <laughs> were not good. They were not yeah. favorable oh, for man. what we were trying to accomplish as a community. It's <laughs> just chemistry homework. That's all it is. Chemistry homework. <laughs> Um, and in the, the full effort to expand our plants over pills conversation, because cannabis is not the only plant that can have medicinal benefits. I wanted to shift that conversation a little bit with you regarding psychedelics. And I know that you are the cannabis expert of the world, or at least we will, we will give you that <laughs> healthy birds stamp of approval for the cannabis expert of the world. But I wanted to reach that conversation because we've talked a little bit about experimentation and I feel like psychedelics are kind of at the point that cannabis was at several decades ago where it's just starting to come out people are doing that experimentation there's not a lot of research behind it um, there's even some information being released that it can, is being used for mental health treatment 
I wanted to know, just we'll keep it vague, what your thoughts are regarding where we're at now with psychedelics, what our understanding is, and what the implications or the uses could be in regard to physical and mental health. Sure. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that cannabis and psychedelics are not going to be the same industry, like not even close. And a big reason for that, well, there's two big reasons for that. One is that consumers are different. Um, most people that consume cannabis regularly consume several times a day. Um, even your hardcore psychonauts are not consuming psychedelics several times a day unless they're microdosing. So when looking at what the market is going to demand and the type of commerce that's gonna come up around psychedelics, it's gonna be different than cannabis because we don't need to have a psychedelic shop on every corner with 50 different kinds of chocolate bars in order to satisfy the use needs of the population. So I think it is gonna be a lot smaller um, on the like kind of the social consumption and um, non-medical consumption side. But the other big difference is that many psychedelics are being fast-tracked through the FDA at a much faster rate than cannabis ever could be. Um, and the main reason for that is that cannabis is not a one molecule, one reaction kind of situation. And that's what the FDA wants. The FDA wants to say, psilocybin is the chemical. Psilocybin has this impact on this symptom. Or MDMA is the chemical. Or LSD is the chemical. That's how the FDA works. Because cannabis is like a symphony, it's not like a solo, right? It's got all of the cannabinoids and the terpenes and everything else in the plant that contributes to the outcome. It has been very difficult to move it through the FDA process. Um, of course, also the fact that it's Schedule 1, but there's a lot of psychedelics in the Schedule 1 category as well. Psychedelics also had a history of therapeutic use. Um, that was more recent than cannabis. You know, cannabis really fell off the therapeutic kind of landscape in the late 30s, mid to late 30s. Um, with psychedelics, we've seen psychedelic research as recent as the 1960s. So it's kind of uh, the memory is still there about some of the things that held promise before it was scheduled in 1972 and kind of taken off the radar. So, you know, I think we kind of have a head start uh, when it comes to psychedelic research, we had to really go back to square one with cannabis research. Um, and cannabis, you know, for a long time held this really weird position within Schedule One that you could only obtain cannabis for research from the federal government. And that really stifled our ability to study cannabis as a medicine. They've since changed that rule, uh, but psychedelics weren't beholden to that. So from the get-go, you could have a private chemist developing MDMA and LSD for research purposes. You could have private cultivators growing mushrooms for research purposes. So it really was a lot easier. I also think that the federal government has an easier time accepting psychedelics because they're not just used by everyone all the time, everywhere, the way cannabis is. Um, you know, even people that are using psychedelics for recreational purposes, there's intention setting around it. They're not habit forming because you can't have the same experience multiple days in a row. Um, you basically, your body's like, okay, we need a rest uh, before we're going to ramp back up to have the same type of experience. So some of the risks that are associated with cannabis are not there with psychedelics. Um, so I do think it's going to be a little bit different, a much more of a focus on medical and therapeutic use than on kind of recreational use, although I think recreational use will still be a part of it. Um, so I think that there will be some differences there. 
for me, one of the biggest concerns about psychedelics is who's leading the therapy. I mean, you know, I'm already seeing so many ads on social media for like, become a trip sitter, become a psychedelic therapist. <laughs> and it just seems like the thing to be. But who is overseeing these programs? Who's making sure that somebody that comes out of trip sitter school is actually qualified to sit with somebody that's having a difficult experience while on a psychedelic plant? Um, you know, psychedelics are amazing and have amazing potential, but they're like everything, there's also risks. And to be honest, the risks of using psychedelics are a bit higher than the risks of using cannabis because they definitely put you in a mo more vulnerable state. Um, we've already seen reports of abuse happening um, during psychedelic journeys by people that were supposed to be facilitators or people not necessarily even enabling, but just allowing abuse to happen by fellow participants during psychedelic journeys and retreats. So I do think that whenever you introduce something that draws a lot of people, many of whom are very inexperienced, that puts you in a very vulnerable state where your reality is very much distorted and you could have a very difficult experience, that it's really important that we put a smart container around that. And that's not to say that we can't have community spaces where people are using psychedelics and people are there with them to support, but we really have to be careful when we start calling something a medicine, start advertising it as a therapeutic experience, that we're ready to deal with those consequences and that we're ready to be responsible enough to say no when it's not the right thing for somebody, even if that's going to make us lose money. And we're not great at that. Yeah. I think that's a good point on, on making sure it's uh, credible sources and that the people that are around you are licensed and educated. I've actually was I mean, in the middle of in the middle of scheduling an ayahuasca journey for all three of us, so I guess I need to make sure that I, I have the, the proper sitter there. So Check your references. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The actually, and I, while you were talking, Amanda, it made me think. And I don't, I'm not pointing any fingers, so I'm just, I'm just asking and curious if, if you know. I would assume that when it comes to typical psychedelic uh, drugs that you can purchase underground, right? Like at music festivals or friends or, you know, whatever, whoever you want to, wherever you're purchasing this stuff from, I would imagine that, that, that field versus like, versus cannabis is more, could be more dangerous in terms of like not knowing what you're getting. Um, who is, who's it from things like that, where cannabis, I'm sure it happens, but it's especially like in flower, you kind of know what you're getting. Of course there can be things on it, but, um, just curious as, in a, as a whole, do you know if that's the case? Like if, if, this stuff being un, unregulated, I know some some states are starting to decriminalize some of this stuff. But um, do you know if 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 the research is out there that that stuff tends to be maybe more dangerous uh, in terms of not knowing what you're getting? Well, I think you're right that it really matters the form that you're getting it in. And you know, if someone hands you mushrooms at an event, um, you can see that they're mushrooms. Now, right. of course, mushroom varieties and strengths can really vary. You know, you've got your golden teachers, you've got your albino penis envy. Uh, they all have different levels of psilocybin in them, just like cannabis has different levels of THC in it. Can, I you, say that second, can you say that second name again? I heard oh, albino, albino penis. Albino penis envy. That is a, that is a type of, of psilocybin mushroom? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. look it up afterwards. That's, that's have to. Dalton's in, nickname to. for me. It, it, looks, <laughs> it looks just like it sounds. Okay. Um, so that's, and that's a very potent, very okay. potent strain of mushrooms. 
whereas golden teachers tend to be a little bit uh, milder. Um, then, of course, we start getting into the edibles. I was going to say with, with cannabis, the concern is more edibles, right? So someone hands you a brownie at a concert and it's not in any packaging. Um, you know, first of all, you don't know if there's only cannabis in there or if there's other things in there as well. You definitely don't know how potent it is. So is it five milligrams? Is it 100 milligrams? Which can definitely make a difference. You know, if you're looking at raw flour or raw mushroom, you have a pretty good sense of what it is and what's going to happen if you take it. Now that we're starting to see more manufactured mushroom products come into the marketplace, chocolate bars and truffles, that's a little bit different. Those have to be tested and labeled properly for you to know exactly what you're getting. So that's kind of a one step away from the whole plant where there's a little bit of a concern about an unregulated product in terms of potency and ingredients. Then when you start getting into powders and pills, this is where it becomes even riskier. And it is risky, not because powders and pills are inherently risky, but because when they're not regulated and not tested, you really don't know what's in there. Um, right? You don't know if that pill that you're being given that tells you that it's MDMA, is it really MDMA? Is it, uh, meth is it cut with methamphetamine? Is it cut with heroin? If somebody's handing you a powder and telling you that it's XYZ, is that actually what it is? And there are amazing organizations like Dance Safe that will go to events and will test your drugs and tell wow. you this is what you think it is. Unfortunately, the Rave Act, which was passed in the 80s, put liability on promoters. Um, so basically, if I'm hosting a big festival and I'm the promoter or the owner of the festival and I invite Dance Safe to come in and test the drugs at my event, I am admitting to knowledge that illicit drug use is happening at my event. And I am therefore liable for any kind of outcome associated with that use. Wow. And so what that really did was scare promoters and festival owners into not having groups like Dance Safe at their events, which was really a detriment to harm reduction and public safety. Because, I mean, we know that drug use goes on at these events. And the best thing we can do, besides having a regulated product where people know what they're getting, is test that product on site so that people can make sure that they're taking what they think they're taking. And so that's made it difficult, but these groups have really pushed forward, especially with fentanyl happening now, um, saying, look, you don't want people to accidentally die just because we're not allowed to test their product to see if there's fentanyl in it. So I do think that until we have a regulated system where people are able to access substances that they know have been tested and properly labeled, giving them the opportunity to test those products on site at an event is probably the closest we're going to get to ensuring a safe supply. Is there anywhere where regulation is happening where people can legally buy for recreational use at this time? Or has that not been passed anywhere yet? So we're starting to get there. So Oregon passed a law that is therapeutic, right? So they're going to be allowing psilocybin uh, in a therapeutic setting. Um, so, you know, again, when we start talking about only allowing things in therapeutic settings, it's like, well, how much does that cost? And is everyone going to be able to afford that? And who's going to decide who the therapists are? And are they going to be able to bill insurance? Like, there's a lot of questions. So they're just getting that up and running. Um, and then Colorado became the most recent state to pass a psychedelics law. And theirs is a little bit broader. So they do allow for social use um, of psilocybin and other um, psychedelics. Sacramental plants, uh, psychedelic plants. It does not establish a commercial system. So it's really more of a decriminalization 
where it's like, right. you can grow it, you can possess it, you can share a certain amount with other people, but we're not necessarily going to have stores. Now, what you have seen are a smattering of cities in various states that have passed their own laws. So in California, um, Eureka or Ar Arcata, California, Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, Santa Cruz um, have all passed their own laws. And, you know, Oakland was really the epicenter of early medical cannabis. And before there was licensing, you had co-ops that opened as dispensaries where you'd become a member of the co-op and you weren't purchasing the cannabis. You were basically reimbursing the co-op for the cost of a farmer producing the cannabis. And so you're starting to see similar models under the guise of churches. So there are some psychedelic churches in Oakland where you can go in and purchase mushroom products, but you're not technically buying the product. You're making a donation to the church and in exchange, they are giving you the product. So there's a lot of kind of, let's see how far we can push this going on, um, especially in Canada, where they have also moved forward with kind of psychedelic regulation. So I think we're getting there. We're definitely on the precipice of these things becoming more formalized. We've seen psychedelic bills introduced um, in states across the country. A lot of them focused on wanting to ensure that veterans and other people that have trauma are able to access these medicines for, for health benefits. Do you see this as being kind of the progression of legalization of whether it's cannabis or some of these different psychedelic drugs of being more of like a, a smattering of cities starting to go, states starting to go kind of decriminalizing things versus on a national level, which is obviously a lot, a lot harder? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the states and the cities will continue to be laboratories of democracy. Um, you know, with alcohol prohibition, it didn't happen at the federal level first. It was individual states that were like, we're not going to follow alcohol prohibition anymore. And then it got to the point where enough states said that, that the feds were like, well, I guess we really can't enforce this anymore. So I definitely see a similar trajectory with psychedelics as we've seen with cannabis. So you have to feel educate, like edu educate my, sorry, Corey, educate my, my ignorance here. So is there, is there a situation like in, let's say San Francisco where it is decriminalized? Is there still a situation where somebody could get in trouble? For psychedelics? For, so let's say for, let's say for, for psilocybin. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they think that you're manufacturing enough to sell. So, you know, if you're, if you, they go, if, you know, someone tips off the cops and they go into your basement and you've got like a whole mushroom farm going on down there with like bins and bins of mushrooms that are way beyond what you could use personally, they may seek to charge you with um, manufacturing uh, if they find you selling mushrooms. So, you know, here and there, probably nothing's going to happen. But if it's a coordinated effort or, you know, they keep finding mushrooms on people and they're like, oh, I got them from Dalton. Gotcha. Um, then they might seek you out for uh, possession with intent to distribute. So it is definitely still illegal to engage in commercial activity mm. around psychedelics. Um, it is really just the lifting of the criminalization of personally using, personally possessing, or growing enough for your own personal use. That's helpful. That's helpful. Okay, Go ahead, Corey. I just see where, so we're watching this progression and seeing where we're at now and where we're going. But I feel like this, the education is so, it's just not there for where it needs to be. Like if this is where it's going towards and it's becoming decriminalized and it's becoming, you know, therapeutically used, but nobody understands any of this stuff. How can we get to that point where it's federally legal, yet there's no education being had? So I guess I just, 
at what point do we need to, does there need to be a full effort push to educate the population on this sort of stuff? Because that's my biggest concern is I feel like there's no education about any of this stuff because there's still that implication of, oh, that stuff's bad. You don't do it. You don't talk about it. So like education, I guess, is my biggest concern when it comes to these things becoming legal. Well, there's definitely some groups out there that are doing a great job of educating. So Double Blind is a great platform that educates people about psychedelics. They educate people about growing mushrooms. Um, so there are platforms out there that are doing education. One of the things we saw with cannabis is that when cannabis becomes legalized in a state, usually there's an earmark in the tax revenue for an education campaign. So, you know, um, that's part of the law is that, you know, similar to like the drinking and driving campaigns, like they have to develop educational materials around responsible use. Um, but, you know, psychedelics are different than cannabis because we're not just talking about one plant, right? A lot of times when we talk about legalization of psychedelics, we're talking about mushrooms and we're talking about San Pedro and we're talking about ketamine and iboga and just like a whole host of compounds. Um, so I do think that it needs to be a little bit more coordinated and we do need more education for folks around the differences between these different plants and their effects. Um, and, you know, I'd like to say that the private industry will take this on. Um, I mean, they will if they want to have customers, because if somebody has a really terrible experience on psychedelics, they're probably not going to use them again. So if the industry wants to be successful, they want to make sure that their consumers are educated, that they're using safely so that they can use again. Um, so my hope is that we will see some of that education come from the industry, um, if not on their own, but that it will be mandated by law. And you said double blind. Is there anywhere else that's doing this education? Uh, well, MAPS does a lot of really great education. Um, Chakruna Institute, which talks a lot about indigenous use um, and, you know, looking at the histories of use and use among vulnerable pop pop populations. So there are definitely groups out there that are taking an education forward approach. Uh, but right now, because we haven't had mass adoption of this by the public, it's still like the early adopters that are interested. You know, we see this kind of uh, pattern of adoption. You have your very early adopters, like the first ones to the table. Then you have your early adopters, which is still the minority of the population. Then it goes mainstream. And right now, we're still in the early adopter phase of psychedelics. So even though you're hearing about it a lot more, we haven't seen mass adoption by the public in any way. So a lot of the education sources are still pretty niche to the early adopters. Now, once psychedelics starts to become more prolific and it's something that anyone can access with their doctor, then you might see good housekeeping and you know Time Magazine and you know Newsweek and some of these more mainstream publications picking up more than just a, you know, ooh, psychedelics, isn't that interesting, but more practical information for readers about being safe with psychedelics. To reach, to reach my patients in Arkansas, they need to just create a psychedelic infomercial and just smack it right dab in the middle of a Fox News segment. That's what they need to do. That would, <laughs> that, that, may, that, that would be the only way to get some attention, I think. Put up posters at the local McDonald's yeah, there you yeah. Go. put it on the put it on the Big Mac boxes. It's a good idea. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. This episode is sponsored by Eight Sleep, and my God, do I love Eight Sleep! I've been sleeping on their pod cover, and I'm absolutely loving it. 
the human race is sleeping less now than any other time in the last century. Innate sleep technology is here to change that. For optimal sleep, your core temperature should fluctuate across sleep cycles to ensure deep rest, but it does depend on the room temperature, your diet, exercise, along with many other factors. While their pod and pod cover products adjust temperature automatically based on your personal preferences to provide you with the best sleep possible. One of my favorite features is the alarm. It gently vibrates my side of the bed awake instead of listening to a loud, startling alarm on my phone. It's also perfect for couples because of the dual system. So my wife prefers hot and I like it cold. But it's not a problem because our cover is set to keep my side bone-chilling cold and hers nice and cozy warm. We both sleep better in the comfort of our own temperatures. So if you want the best night's sleep of your life, you have to go try Eight Sleep. Go to 8sleep.com, that's E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com, and you can use my code Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, at checkout to get $50 off your order. They're constantly running deals, which you can stack on top of my code and get even more off. Just use my name, Dalton, at checkout to get $50 off your 8sleep pod or pod cover and enjoy the best night's sleep of your life. Thanks again, 8sleep, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Dalton, what... Uh... You were you had an interesting conversation. I don't want to steal your thunder, but you were talking to me about fungus. And, oh, uh, yes, yeah, yes. Okay, this is a huge detour, which is great because we'll we can finish with this. Um, Amanda, do you are do you watch much TV like TV shows? Uh, the stuff that's coming up lately and no pop culture stuff. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Not we can really. explain to you. Have you heard of the show The Last of Us? I've heard of it, yes. It comes on before John Oliver, which I do watch. Okay, okay. So it's just it's just the show that comes on before the show you really want to watch. Yes. <laughs> okay. So basically, Corey, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is it's just a uh, a weird tangent in terms of like fungus. So the premise of the show is basically like a a pandemic that arises from like a fungus going haywire and like infecting people, right, and causing like an apocalyptic scene. And, uh, um, God, this is such a, this is such a tangent, but I don't care. It's fun for me. So the, my question is, is the, the, in this situation, basically what happens is of course, there's a, there's a giant apocalypse. Basically a lot of people are dying. You're basically just like a, it's a survival mode situation where people, they, they get themselves into, into packs and little cities become like tribal mentality. People are just trying to survive. Right. It's very much like scavenging. What's amazing to me in watching this is that a lot of people that I've talked to have decided that if that was ever to happen, that they would just off themselves. Like they would just just kill themselves and be done. And for me, I'm like, I'm going to get out and survive. I'm going to figure stuff out. I'm going to just like, you know, tribe up with whoever I need to tribe up. So my question was for you guys is like, do you guys have a very strong opinion one way or the other? Like, would you really, you know, get your hands in the dirt and figure out how to survive? Or are you just like, fuck this, I'm out. This is hor- This is horrendous, I'm gone. So psychedelics oh. become legal and it becomes use, you know, global use infects 90% of the population. What are we going to do kind of a situation? Sure. Sure. Like what, okay. do, you, do you try to survive and figure shit out? Or are you just like, nope, oh, yeah. this is over. No, no, no. You try to survive. Yeah. That's oh, what I, sure. I thought it was. I thought it was absolutely insane. Whenever I asked three people and all three of them were like, nope, killing myself. I'm like, what? Like, you, I am figuring this shit out and I'll, I'll do whatever I can do to just like, I don't to survive and well, I'll make a whole new, I'll start a farm. I don't care. I'll figure, I'll figure stuff out. Right. Well, like, it's, I, it's the fight or flight response. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm a fighter, not a flighter. 
Yeah. So I would stay and, and be like, oh, we can figure this out. Exactly. I mean, I live in a rural area right now anyway. Like, we don't have anything. So Yeah, I'm, you're I'm, like, we're pretty close to that situation. I can right? grow my own food. <laughs> like, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes along with the conversation that we had about that. It, the TV show was alone, right? Where you're just, like, thrown out by yourself and you have a couple. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, like, I love I that will, show. I do watch that show. It's a great I'm show. I'm a fan of that show. I will yeah, admit. I just finished the last episode. I do have a lack of resourcefulness, certainly, when it comes to situations like this. So what I'm doing is I'm going and I'm trying to find the best tribe. That's where I'm going when a situation arises like this. I'm I'm going and I will use my skills, whatever I have in a post-apocalyptic setting, and I'm just going to try to contribute to the the thriving, the thriving tribes. That's a social. And we're going to take though. your you tribe down. To, <laughs> you don't have to be the. You don't have to be the. Uh, you know the grower or whatever. You let Amanda grow the plants. I'll figure mm-hmm. something out. I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I'll figure. Like you said, I'm I'm a fighter too. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to go. You, you yeah. got to find the right people, but. Just like, yeah, just like in alone, I think people probably pretty, pretty highly underestimate their abilities whenever you're in that situation to survive. Yeah, that's the thing is we have a very strong survival instinct as human beings. So I think even people who were like, oh my God, that just sounds too horrific. I would just kill myself. If they're in that situation, I think it may be different um, because you don't really know unless you're in the situation, how you're going to react. And that survival instinct is really, really strong. That's why we're still here. Yeah. So I do think that that folks would take the time to at least explore some options before just peace out. Right. Well, I'm going to extend yeah. that conversation to you as well, because we talked about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago about how long we thought that we would survive on a show oh, like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that it was, what did you give me, Dalton? You gave me like four days max. No, and I was no, not no, really I think, far off of that. I think you said five days. I gave you four. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that that's pretty reasonable for me. Like, I know that I'm going and I'm eating the wrong berry. I'm shitting my guts out, and then <laughs> I gotta get sent. I gotta go to the hospital for some IV fluids. Um, yeah. I think you said that you thought you would last a little longer. How do you think that you would do in a situation like that if you were dropped into the wilderness with like whatever they give you five essentials or something? Yeah, I think I would do pretty well because I am definitely cool with solitude. And I feel like that's the people on alone, either they eat the wrong berry or eat something or hurt themselves, or they just aren't able to handle the solitude. The solitude. And they, they're missing people. And I just, I'm very good at solitude. So I think that that would be my strength. Um, but they always put you somewhere where towards the end it gets so cold. Oh, yeah. And I think that would be tough right, is like just having to deal with the elements after a while. I'm also not a hunter. So like sometimes you'll see people on there that are like, I'm going to be a vegetarian this whole time. And then they like almost starve to death. Like that would probably be me. Yeah. I saw, I saw a guy the other day, they were doing like a highlight video. Um, this guy literally just like stabbed an ox, but he just, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah he just yeah. like, I, no, that's, that that's would not insane. Be me. If they, if, <laughs> I'd have to go to the fishing, the fishing environment. Like if they were like, oh, how you get food here is fishing. I would be good. I could just, I would be able to stay out there. I could just see you, Amanda. Like if I'm watching the alone show, you are like the, you've done your like six months of foraging research on this place to know exactly what everything (laughs) is. You're just like scraping off bark and making like bark soup and all of these, like this variety of mushrooms that you've created to have this luxurious dinner one night. And you're just like doing an educational piece for like an hour on like what all the different, the different uh, shrubberies that you fit. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I would, I would talk to myself constantly. I mean, there's definitely ways to keep yourself entertained. 
Um, and I've, I've gotten, I've, we watched, we watched every season of Alone. So I've definitely picked up some tips if I'm ever in that scenario about how to keep myself entertained. Amanda's yeah. picking her That's five awesome. items. She's getting a, a chair. Ten. You get a, ten, ten items. A fisherman's yeah. hat, a Coors Light, her Pax Vaporizer, and she's just going to be chilling, <laughs> just fishing all day long, man. Yep. It'll be awesome. You'd beat both of us for sure. I have, I have no doubt about that. I agree. I agree. Cool. This is the only way that I wanted to end the podcast. This is amazing. I love it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Talking about your shortcomings, I think that's always an amazing thing to do. Yeah. Keep yourself honest. Thank you. you Exactly. Thank you again for coming and and having a chat with us. It's fun as always, and you're a wealth of information and knowledge, and a lot of fun to talk to. And there's not, there's really nobody that I've come across in the social media educational world that does as good of a job educating as you and making it relevant and putting into pieces well, of thank like you. what's happening in the in the current state of the world so thank you very much for listening to us and entertaining our our randomness but really do appreciate anytime you. anytime lovely all right was- well thank you all for being here thank you Corey. thank you amanda and thank you guys for listening and we'll talk again bye-bye all right thanks bye. guys Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening. Real quick before you go, if you enjoyed this episode, we would be honored if you could go hop on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star review. It really helps us out. Also check out our sponsors and the links provided in the show notes below for some great discounts on products. You can also sign up for our newsletter at healthybirds.org where we drop weekly digestible health information in a fun way. And if you have any questions, comments, or just want to complain about my personality flaws, absolutely fine. You can email me directly at dalton at healthybirds.com. Would love to connect with all of you. So until next time, be happy, be healthy, people.